The Unique Contributions podcast is brought to you by Relics. Find out more about us by visiting relics.com. If you look at gender, we've all been talking about gender for a long time, but yet you look at the numbers and in 2020 only 5% of FTSE 100 CEOs are women, which is which is a bit a bit shocking, don't you think? Hello, and welcome to Unique Contributions, a Relics podcast, where we bring you closer to some of the most interesting people from around our business. I'm YS Chi, and I'll be exploring with my guests some of the big issues that matter to society, how they are making a difference, and what brought them to where they are today. My guest today is Helena Sevo, Chief Strategy Officer at Relics, and I'll be exploring with her the topics of diversity and innovation. Helena has lived and worked in Hong Kong, the U.S., Latin America, and Europe, and is one of the most senior women at Relics. This gives her a unique insight into the topic of diversity, and in particular, the meaning of diversity of thought. I'll also be asking her how this leads to better business outcomes and more innovation. Helena, it's great to have you today. Welcome. Thanks for joining the podcast. You're based in London, right? Yes, why yes, and, and thank you for inviting me. A real pleasure to join you today. Um, I have to say that after facing a less than cheery winter, I have to say I was really looking forward to this podcast as a highlight <laughs> of my day today. Well, going back a little more, though, how have things been for you over these last few months? Crazy is, I think, the world the best sums it up. I think it's been it's been very hard for everyone, I believe. Um but rather than wallow on the hard bits, let, let me tell you a bit about the positive elements. Um, I think we have all realized that it is still possible to have a very fulfilling and effective career by having a little bit more balance in life. And I have really, really cherished that. So I do hope as we go into the next year and we we get to this finally some level of new normal, which is closer to what we know is normal, that we will still learn how to hold on to a bit more of perspective, a bit more of balance. We didn't really know what could be done before, did we? No, we didn't. We didn't. We, we, we have learned it the hard way, but we have, as I said, I think there are many, many positives to be taken forward. Right. And pendulum always swings too far to each direction before it finds an equilibrium. And I hope that uh, we will find that equilibrium in a, in a rational and sensible way. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to dive into your role. But before we do that, I want to know more about you, your personal background, which is needless to say, very unusual. So this is what I know. You grew up in Serbia. You left home very young to study in Hong Kong and then went to Georgetown in the U.S. to study law. Then you decided to turn down the opportunity to do a Ph.D. from Cambridge and worked in Paraguay instead on conflict resolution and mediation. Then you jumped to another direction to get an MBA at Harvard, worked a few years as management consultant, and then you joined our group 10 years ago. Wow, what a background. Please, let's start with Serbia. Tell us a little bit about the experience of living there, both prior to the war and during the war. And what was it like to leave home to go study in Hong Kong at such a young age? 
Yes, it's it's been quite a journey. I mean, I I guess why as you have had a similar experience of living in different cultures, and I'm sure you'll share this sense of living in a different culture really opens you up to very different experiences and turns your life into into a very different life than you maybe would have imagined living at, at the start. So, so let, let me start at my start of the journey. So, so yes, as you said, I grew up in Serbia. Um, when I was a kid, I, I heard about United World Colleges and I was, I was quite determined to go. Um, I didn't apply to Hong Kong. That wasn't my intention. I didn't actually even know that there was one in Hong Kong. So when I got a call and I was told, you know, we got amazing news, we got a full scholarship for you, but it's a college in Hong Kong that's going to find you. I was a little bit taken aback, I have to say. And I really, when I look back at that time, I really credit my mom. She looked at me, she took a deep breath, and she said, is this really what you want to do? I said, I don't know, I think so. And, and that was it. I think the rest of my family thought this was insane. I was, I was a kid who's never left Serbia. I didn't speak great English or learned English in the state school in Serbia. I, I'm not even necessarily sure that my family knew where Hong Kong was. Um, but my mom had this incredible sense of belief and trust in me. And she just knew that if this is what I wanted to do, there, there was no stopping me and this was the right thing to do. And I have to say, it's been an amazing experience. Um, we had about 46 different nations in a small class of about 100 students. And what an amazing way to experience this incredible microcosm of the world, this incredible diversity of languages, cultures, different points of view. And as you can imagine, it was a real antidote to what was happening in my home country. Uh, my home country, which when I was growing up was called Yugoslavia, and I remember as a very happy place growing up, had gone through very turbulent times where very polarizing language and very much of us versus them rhetoric had taken hold and has turned into a full-blown civil conflict. So for me, the polar opposites of these two worlds will, as you imagine, have stayed forever for me and have actually inspired a lot of my a lot of the way I process the world and think about the world today. Yeah, I left home at 15 also to go to a boarding school across the ocean. And I can imagine, but you know, because I had traveled so much around the world up to that point, it wasn't as shocking as it must have been for you. And my goodness, your mom, she really knew you. She really trusted you to send halfway around the world like that. Yes, it's, it's quite incredible. It has, it has taught me about this importance also role models and people who really believe in you and support you. And, and my mom has, has always been that. And there's been other people in my life. But yes, without that um, sheer trust and belief, I, I don't know whether I would have managed to do it on my own. So I sometimes joke that I have a two-year-old now and I hope when he comes up, when he is 16 and comes up with some crazy idea that I'll have the equal level of, of support and trust as my <laughs> mom did. I'm sure you will. Just so you know, you are the second person I know from Lim Chuan Po World United World College in Hong Kong. So, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, my previous analyst uh, was also a graduate, and and, and I know it changed her life too. Fantastic. Um, you also have an interest in history and politics. 
And so it steered you to go into conflict resolution and mediation. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes. So after Hong Kong, I went on to study law. Uh, I thought law was a way of putting history and politics into some sort of coherent logical structure. I think I was looking for a way to explain to myself how the world works and the attractiveness of law was it had all these rules and it was logical and it made sense to me. Um, so I did a law degree. I went on to the Masters of Law in the US at, at Georgetown University. And maybe because of my background and where I grew up, I was very attracted to this whole field of alternative dispute resolution. So mediation was, was a very big field um, at that time. And then I took somewhat of a detour and I always think, Life takes you interesting places if you're open to it. So for me, that was going to Paraguay, which was somewhere out of a left field. But essentially how it happened is that a colleague of mine from Georgetown was working on building the first commercial mediation center in Paraguay. And he asked me whether I would come and help them write the rules and, and train the first mediators. And I thought, you know, why not? I left to Hong Kong when I was 16. And why wouldn't I go to Paraguay? And I'm really, really happy I did. It was a completely different experience. Hong Kong was a shock to the system, but I was surrounded by other kids who were in a similar circumstances to, to me, by other kids in the college. Whereas when I went to Paraguay, there was a completely different level of cultural and, and language immersion. And I sometimes joked that I felt like a protagonist in, in the book Hitchhiker's Guide to Galaxy, where everything was noise, <laughs> and then somebody put a little babble fish in my ear, and all of a sudden I could hear words, and all of a sudden I was speaking. It was it was remarkable. Um, so I, I I really really enjoyed that, um, and I think that, that that was that was an incredible part of my life. Then I did, as you said at the beginning, I applied. I wanted to do a PhD in law and economics, and and, and applied and got accepted to Cambridge. And just before I went, I had a bit of a wobble. Serbia was going very belatedly through an economic and political reform. And I thought, well, do I want to go and do a PhD for four years or do I want to get stuck in and see, see, see whether I can make a change? Um, so I ended up going back to Serbia. Um, and I think all I can say about those two years is that affecting political change is way harder and way less effective than learning Spanish from scratch, unfortunately. So <laughs> I left a bit disillusioned. Um, but as, as I reflected on these two experiences, I think two things that I learned is, one is an amazing power of being an outsider. And sometimes one is an outsider by you know, sheer who you are. Sometimes you're just an outsider because it's a new team or a new company. And it's incredibly liberating because you don't know the rule. No one expects you to know the rules. So everything is a fair game. You can ask any questions. You can, you can provide any perspective. And the second one is, is getting to the core of what really motivates you or me as a person. And I still care very, very deeply about these big political societal issues. But actually, the way I'm very impactful in making change is on a very micro-individual level, which is what I try to do today. You need many, many, many of you to add the micro-impact to really change a society, doesn't it? it? It does. But I think if, if everyone does their bit, I think this world will be, would be a wonderful place. 
And we are at a point like that on many issues around the world, aren't we? Correct. Now, why business school? That's a good question, Wyas. I felt that having lived through all these different experiences, I felt I needed to go to a place which would bring it all together. And for me, business school did just that. It brought all these different elements into, into a coherent structure and made it clear to me that the way I can impact change is through doing business. Um, so it's been, it, it was an incredible two years experience. Well, I'm glad you went to business school because it gave the path for you to come to Relics in 2011. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you arrived at Relics in 2011. You spent time at LexisNexis Legal and then at Elsevier and back, I guess, again, one more time at LexisNexis in strategy and sales positions. Here that you are now, you're heading the entire strategy for Relics. This also makes you one of the most senior women in the group. One of the issues I know you're passionate about is diversity. In many ways, coming from such diverse background, you are a symbol of diversity already anyway. So how do you see diversity and what does it mean to you? Let me start with, with the business case for diversity and then I'll, I'll give you my, my personal perspective. Um, I think from the business side of things, the case for diversity can't be any clearer. Um, and it's not just because it's it's the fair and right thing to do in a sense that we should represent, we should be reflective of the society that, that we operate in. But there is actually so much research out there which shows the power of diversity on actual hardcore business metrics. McKinsey has been doing this study for a number of years where they look at the impact of diversity, looking particularly at gender and ethnicity on financial performance. There is a clear positive correlation with financial outperformance and the levels of diversity. There's similar studies being done on innovation, and there is a clear link between increased diversity and increased levels of, of innovation. And also studies looking at decision-making, especially in times of crisis, decision-making leads to a much better outcomes, is in much more robust when, when the teams making decisions are diverse. So for me, the business case is, is, is really, really strong. And then obviously there is my personal journey and you, you, you heard my journey around traveling from different places, living in different cultures. And unfortunately having that backdrop of a home country which had gone through the opposite of diversity, that had gone through very polarizing, polarizing times. So I can see both sides of it and I can see the to my own personal journey, the, the power that the diversity brings to the table. So, you know, there are very different types of diversity, right? Uh, from the most obvious one, which is starting with gender and then go through race or age background and so on and so forth, but diversity of thought, right? Yes. That's probably something that many people don't think about. Why is it so important to you? Yes, it's critical. And I have seen it in the business work so effectively so many times. So I'll tell you a story when I joined LexisNexis. Um, so I joined a team that, that was LexisNexis International, so all of our businesses outside of the U.S. Um, and it was quite interesting because the CEO of the business was, was a woman called um, Judy Vesma. 
but her entire team, all these CEOs were, were men. So I was the first woman to join the team and the team has been stable in existence for some, for some time. And then there was another lady who joined around the same time as an HR director. And all of these leaders ended up telling us a year in that just adding two more female voices to the table completely changed the dynamic of the discussion in the room. It just brought, it wasn't necessarily the things we said, it was the elements of the around the culture that has changed, that has changed the way they were communicating with each other. And I think there are countless of those individual examples around the impact that diversity and diversity of thought and things that are being said, how that impacts the overall, overall um, company. Um, and I think if you take that to a broader concept around the, the concept of diversity of thought, there's this very fascinating notion called creative abrasion that Professor Linda Hill from Harvard Business School talks about. And the research they've done in truly creative companies and truly innovative companies is that they not only have a great marketplace of ideas, but they're very good at creating this thing called creative abrasion, which is a paradox of being able to constructively debate, create, and ultimately also kill ideas. And it's quite interesting because it's very difficult to create that environment in a monocultural teams, in the teams where everyone is the same, no one has a different point of view, everyone is polite, no one asks difficult questions. So you almost need that grain of diversity of thought, that tension to actually spark the creativity to the next level. Yeah, that tension is necessary, but it has to be really applied carefully, doesn't it? Yes, no, no, exactly. Helena? One cannot talk about diversity without talking about inclusion. What can organizations like Relics do as the entire entity to improve inclusion? Yes, I mean, one, inclusion and diversity go hand in hand. Diversity is really only just about representation, about the percentage of, of different elements of diversity you have in a corporate. But really what we're all trying to achieve is, is an inclusive culture and a culture and everyone feels psychologically safe and, and empowered to speak up and, and share their, their thoughts. Um, and I think the corporates can do many things about it. I mean, we have approached it in a, in a very data-driven manner, which, which is maybe obvious because we are a data-driven company. Um, so we have decomposed this complex problem into its integral parts and looked at how the, what are the different ways in which you can improve both the diversity and then the overall uh, culture. Um, so we looked at things like what are the levers of diversity, looking at attrition, new hires, um, promotion, and how do we actually really move away from talking about this is a complex problem to actually starting to chip away step by step at this problem. And then there is this other layer around the, the overall culture so things that we are, for example, doing is, is looking at the language we use. It turns out that technology and, and product are full of language which, is, which actually has racist connotations, which I wasn't even fully aware of. So things like master-slave, black and white used in the context of positive and negatives. Um, and there is much we can do to improve the debate around that and remove some of this, this language. Um, and then there are the measurable ways in which we're now starting to track um, consistently things like psychological safety and inclusion index, which gives us a much better sense of, of the culture of the company than some of the most standard metrics. 
these things necessarily take time, though, the, the approach that Relics is taking? Yes, they do take time. I mean, it's sometimes I, I look back at this problem and I feel if you look at gender, we've all been talking about gender for a long time, but yet you look at the numbers and in 2020, only 5% of FTSE 100 CEOs are women, which is which is a bit, bit shocking, don't you think? Um, so I think there are two ways the one should probably think about this. is One is the way around what are the overall things that stand in our way. Um, and I think in that way, there is a lot of lack of knowledge and potentially stereotypes that, that play in, in what happens out. Um, and again, if you look at the research and data here, it's, it's quite fascinating. Um, so you look at the leadership capabilities data. So Zengel Falkman, which is a famous company which does 360-degree reviews, they looked at thousands of their, their inputs and have actually, according to their analysis, um, you may not like this, but women outscore men on 17 out of 19 capabilities that differentiate excellent leaders. Um, so it's clear that the data shows that when it comes to gender, women actually score quite highly on, on capabilities. And then there's this other stereotype that the women take themselves out of race because they have different, different priorities. Um, and again, if you look at the data and you go back to the research, the research shows that men and women actually have the same priorities. And as they progress through their career, they want to add more balance in their career. Um, so sometimes I think we spend a lot of time trying to fix things like teach women how to lean in, where actually maybe the solution is back to our conversation at the beginning. We all need to bring more balance into, into our lives. And that's actually would benefit more, both men and women equally. In our culture, there's a saying that it takes two hands to make the sound of a clap. And I think that we need both of those to happen from the men and from the women's side as well. Fascinating. I could go on for hours on this with you, Helena, but we're going to move on to your current role. Since joining the group in 2011, you've spent time again between Lexus and Elsevier uh, and, and in strategy and sales. What do you think is a little bit different about Relics? You've seen a lot of businesses as management consultant. In the you know unique insight into the business, how, how do we operate differently than other companies? I think it's really, really fascinating. I was, I was reading yesterday in some of our materials. I don't know whether you knew this, but in 1995, Forbes predicted that we're going to be the first casualty of fintech. I have read that since the day I joined this company and feel very, very vindicated. <laughs> exactly. And as, as we know, we are number 12 of the FTSE 100 today, so not, nowhere near the demise that they predicted. Um, so it's been, it's been an incredible transformation. And it, it's interesting, you, you, you mentioned my, my time at consulting. So think both at HBS and at Bain, you, you end up studying a lot of companies. And it's always been quite interesting to me how companies swing from decentralized to decentralized model and, and back again. And trying to solve that fundamental problem about what's the best way to make decisions. And I think what Relics does quite uniquely is that we have a very clear sense of direction and a very clear pace of change, which is driven from the center. But the actual decisions, the customer decisions are made by the people who are closest to the customers. 
And that allows us this incredible sense of customer centricity, because it's very difficult for people who are not close to the customer to make those type of decisions. So I think that's what makes Relics really quite unique, that we have this lean center with a very clear business philosophy and a very clear direction of travel. And then the actual execution, the actual nitty-gritty of how we get there, how do we hit the customer centricity, how do we do everything in a way that makes the life better, faster, more productive for our customers, that all those decisions are done as close to the customer as we can get. Well, that's really, really well described, Elena. In the years I've been with Relics, I have watched alignment and lack of alignment between center and the business units. And when there isn't an alignment where there is just a pretense of an alignment, boy, it is a totally different experience. And what do you think is required for, the, for that alignment between those who are closest to the cu- customers and those who are at the center creating the large picture, large direction? Yeah, so I, I think what you need is, is having faith and having a clear long-term view on the market. And, and we have demonstrated this quite well in, in, in some parts of the business. Let's give you an example, for example, our legal business. When I joined more than 10 years ago, um, at that point, we were still going through this journey of, of moving to online, of making a wonderful, great online experience. But we had started talking about the analytics and legal analytics. Um, and at that point, I have to say, I was feeling frustrated because I was feeling we're not moving fast enough. We need to do more. But we had a clear direction of travel. And I look back now and I look at the new product that the legal team has launched, Lexus Plus, which has just gone live in the U.S., and it's incredible. All of these pieces that we, we have built over 10 years have actually come together to create a fantastic customer experience and have moved that research and that vision from I'm using this tool to find legal information to actually I can pinpoint the motion that works in this particular case. I can find what this judge really cares about. I can find which type of language works. Is my brief structured correctly? And this vision of providing this is now reality. Um, and it's, it's, it's incredible to see this journey because sometimes when you're at the beginning of the journey, you can feel a bit frustrated because you want things to happen fast. But not everything can happen overnight. Um, and I think that's fantastic to see that journey over 10 years and to see the vision and then the hard execution that has, has brought it in, into fruition. And I think I can tell you countless examples of that. I look at our risk business. People think we, we have now become very strong in digital identity because we have done recently a number of acquisitions. But actually, we've been working on this for the last 10 years. So it looks to the market like it's good timing. And we've been lucky that we can now leverage the immense increase in e-commerce. But luck has nothing to do with it. It's been a long-term strategic thinking and then very detailed execution. Yeah, I do know that we had seen that transformation from pure content to decision-making content through data analytics. That was very clear. That was the direction we were going to go. But boy, it took many, many years for different 
corners of the business to all embrace this. I guess central to this is a word we often abuse, and that's innovation. Yes. Innovation at Relics. Please tell us a little more. Go ahead and even brag about it a little. <laughs> um, yes, I think we 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 do an amazing job at, at, at innovation, and I think the two things that have helped us build this this culture of innovation. Um, so one is the customer centricity, and the other one is building the organizational capabilities to support that customer centricity. Um, and if you look back at that time in '95 when Forbes said oh my, these guys are going to be the first one to fall to the, to the internet. You can understand why we were operating in the markets in which we were providing excellent content, really high, high quality content. And we knew everything about law and the actual cases you needed and what's, what's the right law book. We knew everything about academic publishing. But we didn't really know anything about people using that information. We didn't know what lawyers do. That's right. We always use someone else to sell as an agent or as an intermediary. So we really didn't know how our products and content were being actually consumed. Exactly. We had no idea. We had no idea what these people were trying to achieve. We just, as you said, we were we were experts in curating the highest quality content or what happened to that content. Hmm. We were not the wiser. So I think for us, the fundamental shift that happened from switching from being an outsider providing something and then having no vision about where that goes to actually looking at the customer and looking at the outcomes of customer and what the customer is trying to achieve and really understanding that has provided this major switch. Um, and as you said, it, it feels frustrating because you feel like maybe we could have done this faster there are some elements around the organizational capability that I do think just take patience and, and take time. Um, and I think the elements of organizational capability that we have then built over time is how do we insource that customer centricity? So as you know, we started by employing a lot of lawyers and employing a lot of doctors and, and, and a lot of people who used to work in research. But then you get to this problem of Lawyers know everything about what lawyers do, but lawyers don't know how to build a product. So you need to bring other skill sets. You need to bring the best product managers out there and people who have built digital products. You need to bring, bring the best UX people. You need to bring the best technologists, the best data scientists. And I think all of these different elements have now come to create this this end-to-end -end functional entities where these different skills and we go back to this idea of diversity of thought can exist in many ways, but this diversity of thought comes together in these multifunctional teams that can then really solve customer problems and will really be customer-centric. Helena, I have two questions, mm -hmm. one on more on the professional side and the other perhaps on more on the personal side. The professional question is, what would you encourage the... 33,000 employees at Relics to do more around innovation for the next couple more years? Yes, I'd encourage them to break the problem that they have into small components and solve, test, 
solve that component, move to the next component. I, I often talk to people and they think that innovation is, I don't know, coming up with this grand idea. They always think, oh, I need to be a Steve Jobs or I need to be Elon Musk and they need me to try to get to space and I don't really know how to get to space. So that's a part. And I think people get somewhat tripped up in that, whereas actual innovation is, is anything which is new and useful. It's, it's fixing the everyday things and making the incremental change. It's, it's being committed to that long-term journey of not getting uh, frustrated, not, not getting, not losing sight, but just actually resolving the small issue. And once you do it better, you do it a little bit better the, the following day. And I think for me, maybe it's a personal journey as, as well. I feel like 10 years ago, I would have told you a lot about we're not enough risk-taking and we need to take risks and we're not supporting risk. Whereas now I think, we actually need more patience, more focus, and you know maybe, maybe that's a result of having a mm. two-year-old and spending a lot of time in, in trying to crack a two-year-old to do anything. And you, it requires a lot of patience. Yeah, I think um, I think sometimes we think uh, we only get one chance to get it right, and while that is a good discipline to get it right each and every time we do need some patience sometimes to get it wrong and then learn from it. Exactly. It's all about learning. It's all about decomposing problems into, into small components and then, and then learning from them and, and taking it forward and, 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 and being a bit more objective, a bit more data-driven. I mean, we talk about diversity a lot. I mean, I think a lot of the problems in diversity is people get tripped up in these conceptual cultural issues. Um, instead of thinking about it as, as a problem, as any other problem, and trying to decompose it and look at it logically, look at the data, and find a logical and rational way in which you can experiment with little things um, and move it forward. So yeah, I'd encourage all of our employees to think that way. And I don't think that it's not just a job for product development organization. I think every function should be thinking like a product development organization. Um, HR, finance, everyone should be thinking, how do I do whatever it is that I'm doing a little bit better um, every day? And as I promised, I have a question more on your personal side. Um, a lot of people I run across around the world look up to someone like you leading the strategy um, as, as a woman, especially. Um, going back to the question of diversity, um, what advice would you give aspiring young people who feel like they're outsiders to become insiders? My personal advice has always been you have to start with what you control. So I think the most important thing is determining for yourself what is it that you want or that I want. And don't let the society or anyone else stand in the way. And don't, don't, don't hesitate, don't apologize if you believe you're capable, you are. And that's a gift that my mom has given to me. And I try and give that gift to anyone that I mentor today, that I speak to. Um, so that, that's, that's my biggest advice is just chart your own territory. Take control of your own life and don't apologize for it. I have a story to share now that you've said such wise words. Um, there was a question posed by a very young student, college student, to an enormously successful businessman 
about what it was like to be a non-white person. I will not reveal the uh, the racial uh, profile of the person, but and this person answered by saying, "Oh no, no, no! That all depends on your perspective. You see, I am definitely the majority in the world in which I come from. Therefore, I don't consider myself outsider. I find my inside group." That was that was something just really stuck with me. Um, and I think that you said it uh, also in your own ways. So thank you for that. But above all, thank you for taking the time today to um, to speak with me and to be able to share through this podcast with lots of other people. I can only wish you, Helena, continued good health and safety for you and your loved ones. And I look forward to seeing you soon back in person. Thank you, and all, all the best to you, Wyas, and thank you so much for inviting me and for making me part of such a joyful conversation, such an interesting conversation. Thank you. And with that, we've come to the end of our first series. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed it. Over the past weeks, we've met technology experts, a pop culture geek, an ex-sports coach, and other amazing business leaders. We've heard how they have journeyed to unexpected places, how they've learned to thrive in their careers here at Relics, and why the things they do make such a difference to our world. These are what we at Relics call our unique contributions. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can still go and check those out now on your podcast app. My name is YS Chi. I thank you for tuning in and look forward to bringing you the next series.